You're listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadler, episode 10, Jubilees and Enoch. It is now over a century into the Hellenistic period, and prophecy, the Talmud later tells us, had ceased. In the last episode, I discussed one of the latest books of the Hebrew Bible, Ecclesiastes, and its apocryphal cousin, if you will, Ecclesiasticus, or Ben Sira. You might remember that whatever else these books were, they were not prophetic. Both written in Hebrew in Jerusalem around 200 BCE, drew on both the biblical wisdom tradition and Hellenistic philosophical ideas in order to present reflections on life and history. Neither author claimed the authority of divine revelation. It would be wrong, though, to think that these two books and the Talmud's later judgment reflected a wider cultural assumption that revelation, that God's active and continuing personal connection to the world, had ceased. Many, maybe most, Jews continued to believe that God's revelation did not cease at Sinai, and that revelation from God was in fact not limited to Sinai. In this episode, I will discuss two ancient books written at precisely the same time as Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiasticus but whose worldviews and presentations could hardly be more different. These two books, Jubilees and First Enoch, are usually referred to as part of the pseudepigrapha. Their importance has long been noted by scholars. Copies circulated among and were read and considered authoritative by Jews for hundreds of years, although ultimately neither book made it into the biblical canon as we now know it. The reasons for this exclusion are obscure, but there can be no doubt that they both reflect widely shared understandings of the cosmos and God's role within it. Let me start with Jubilees. Its discovery and recovery is a story in itself, and one that would be repeated in similar ways for several of the texts that I will discuss over the next few episodes. We are now relatively certain that Jubilees was written originally in Hebrew, but that is not the form in which it was originally discovered. In the late 19th century, a scholar named R.H. Charles unearthed a set of manuscripts in the British Museum that were once part of an Ethiopic monastery. This Ethiopic text, Charles surmised, was really a translation of an ancient Jewish text that itself had first been translated into Greek. It was, that is, a translation of a translation. Additionally, fragments of the same text have been found in Syriac and Latin, but until the middle of the 20th century, there was no trace of the Hebrew original. Only with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls have we come to possess fragments of the original of Jubilees, thus confirming Charles's conjecture of this text as being authored by Jews during the Hellenistic period. When during the Hellenistic period, though? The earliest fragment of Jubilees found among the Dead Sea Scrolls dates to 125 BCE at the earliest. The work is certainly earlier, but it is hard to say how much earlier. Some scholars see veiled references in the work to events that took place in the Maccabean Revolt, dating the work to around 160 BCE. Personally, I don't find these arguments terribly convincing and the earliest date of Jubilees could well go back to prior to the revolt. In any case, we are probably safe to date the work to the first half of the 3rd century BCE. 
The full title of the work, as perhaps later added by a medieval scribe, is The Account of the Division of Days of the Law and the Testimony for Annual Observance According to Their Weeks of Years and Their Jubilees Throughout All the Years of the World. The narrative of the book is in the third person and reads much like the Bible. It is the story of how God revealed these details to Moses on Mount Sinai. And right away at the beginning of the story, we see that something is not quite right. According to the biblical book of Exodus, God's revelation on Mount Sinai appears to take place on the third day of the third month. There is admittedly some ambiguity in Exodus chapter 19. On the first day of the third month, the Israelites enter the wilderness. And then, after a series of conversations that Moses has with both the elders and God, God sets his revelation for three days hence. The problem here is that we don't know over how long a period of time those preliminary conversations took place. Was it all on the same day? Did it take a day or two? Thus correlating more precisely with the later rabbinic tradition, which dates revelation to the holiday of Shavuot on the fifth day of the third month? According to Jubilees, it in fact took more than two weeks. And here I quote, in the first year of the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt, in the third month, on the sixteenth day of that month, the Lord spoke to Moses, as Jubilees begins. From its beginning, Jubilees exhibits its concern with dates and chronology. Dating is in fact essential to the book. The book, which presents itself as the content of God's revelation on Sinai, recounts Israelite history but with a twist. The laws that are found throughout the later books of the Torah are given origins in the early history of Israel that is recounted in Genesis. The author of Jubilees, in a sense, anticipates the question that later Jewish readers of the Bible would pose. If the primary purpose of the Torah is to convey the mitzvot, God's laws, why waste space on practically the entire book of Genesis, which contains no commandments, in Jubilee's retelling, the question does not arise. God's laws, in fact, organically arise from both his creation and Israel's early history. Let me offer three examples from Jubilee's. The first and most obvious example is the Sabbath. In the book of Genesis, the first creation account ends with a short notice of the Sabbath. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because on it God ceased from all the work of creating that he had done. Later, of course, the Torah and the prophetic books would try to fill out what it means for the Sabbath to be blessed and holy, although even then not nearly in enough detail for the later rabbis. Jubilees, too, though, sees this biblical verse in need of expansion. Jubilees begins with an account of creation that largely mirrors Genesis chapter 1, although it is narrated by an angel of the presence of the Lord. Upon reaching the seventh day, the account grammatically expands. The angel tells Moses that God created the Sabbath so that the angelic beings might keep it with him. They would be joined in keeping the Sabbath by a sanctified people. Just as there were 22 chief men from Adam to Jacob, and presumably, as we were just told that there were 22 kinds of creations, so too there are 22 kinds of work, which presumably we are forbidden from doing on the Sabbath. 
Jubilees goes on to enumerate some of these categories of work from which the Israelites, like the angels above, should abstain on the Sabbath. They include preparing food or drink on the seventh day, drawing water, and carrying things from house to house. On this day, the angel says, we kept the Sabbath in heaven before it was made known to any human to keep the Sabbath upon the earth. The Israelite observance of the Sabbath, and Jubilees is quick to note that it is only for Israelites, is an imitation of that of the heavenly court. The Sabbath is so important to the author that another account of its laws, with some differences from this earlier account, appears again at the very end of the book. The connection of the Sabbath to divine activity is rather obvious, merely expanding upon what is already implicit in the biblical account itself. The second revealed law, though, is rather less obvious. According to Jubilees, Adam stayed for 40 days outside of the Garden of Eden, and eight days later Eve was brought into it as well. Here is the source for Jubilees of the laws of impurity. Just as Adam observed one week of impurity after creation, the subsequent birth of a son renders a woman, that is any woman, impure for seven plus an additional 33 days, that is 40 days. Because Eve took another week to be brought into the garden, the birth of a daughter renders a woman impure for twice the amount of time as that of a son, that is, 80 days. The numbers match up to what we find in Leviticus chapter 12. But here, unlike Leviticus, a rationale is provided. The laws of impurity after childbirth were established along with the earliest history of humanity. My third example comes from later in the book. In previous episodes of this podcast, I discussed the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, how it seems to be added on in the Torah and missing from some of the later biblical books. The Book of Jubilees, on the other hand, weaves it organically into the fabric of Israelite history. According to this account, Yom Kippur responds to the sin of Jacob's children when they told him that Joseph had died. Yom Kippur becomes an annual rite of atonement, quote, so that they might atone for themselves with a young kid on the tenth day of the seventh month, once a year, on account of their sin, because they caused the affection of their father to grieve for Joseph, his son. Unlike the biblical account, the Book of Jubilees links Yom Kippur to a specific historical event. In retelling the story of Israel's prehistory, the Book of Jubilees also must engage in a healthy amount of narrative interpretation. The story of the binding of Isaac found in Genesis 22, for example, is notoriously difficult. Why would God test Abraham? What kind of test was this to see if he would kill his own son? The author of Jubilees, perhaps in partial imitation of the Book of Job, neatly sidesteps this problem by crediting not God, but a character named Prince Mastima with the idea. Prince Mastima instigates God, telling him to test Abraham with the command to sacrifice his son. God does so, and Prince Mastima, watching as Abraham almost goes through with it, was shamed. Who is this Prince Mastima? For the author of the Book of Jubilees, the world was filled with such supernatural beings. We already met the angel of the presence of the Lord. 
Mestima is a Satan-like character who reigns as the prince of the spirits and who successfully adjured God to keep one-tenth of his evil army of spirits. He tried to kill Moses and keep the Egyptians from releasing the Israelites. It is only because God locked up Mestima on the 14th through the 18th of Nisan that the Israelites were able to leave Egypt. And God released Mestima on the 19th of Nisan so that Mestima would encourage the Egyptian army to pursue the Israelites into the Reed Sea where they would meet their doom. The assumption that the world is thick with these supernatural beings, some of whom are evil and report to Mestima, addresses the problem of theodicy. Jubilees explains the existence of evil. It comes largely from the workings of evil spirits. The cost of this solution, of course, is an absolute monotheism. Evil comes from Mestima and his minions, not God himself. It is a compromise that does not appear to trouble the author, however. Good, pious Jews for this author obviously believe in the existence of a wide range of supernatural beings, even if ultimately the one God runs the show. This is by no means an idiosyncratic position. The author of First Enoch, as we will see shortly, shares it. I want to conclude this brief discussion of Jubilees close to where I started by talking about dates. The many and specific dates mentioned in the book might sound biblical, but there is a crucial difference. The author of the Book of Jubilees argues for a 364-day solar calendar. Such a calendar, the author believes, was divinely instituted. The book establishes the calendar during the discussion of Shavuot, the holiday of Pentecost, which it in turn links to Noah and the story of the flood. Shavuot confirmed the covenant that God made with Noah. It was soon forgotten, only to be revived by Abraham, after which it was soon forgotten again, until it was revived once more at Sinai. This, incidentally, is the first attempt to connect the holiday of Shavuot to the divine revelation on Sinai. The theme of covenant leads the author into a discussion of calendar, which is then linked back to Noah. The author's concern with the calendar is explicitly polemical, as it states in chapter 6, verses 36 to 38 of the Book of Jubilees, And there will be those who will examine the moon diligently, because it will corrupt the appointed times, and it will advance from year to year ten days. Therefore the years will come to them as they corrupt and make a day of testimony, a reproach, and a profane day a festival. And they will mix up everything. A holy day is profaned and a profane one for a holy day, because they will set awry the months and the Sabbath and the feasts and the jubilees. Therefore I shall command you, and I shall bear witness to you, so that you may bear witness to them, because after you have died your sons will be corrupted, so that they will not make a year only 364 days, and therefore they will set awry the months and the appointed times and the Sabbaths and the feasts. Note that a 364-day calendar fits well into the generally ordered world of Jubilees. It amounts to 52 seven-day weeks exactly. The days of the week remain on their monthly dates for eternity. At the same time, the calendar gradually moves, and every few generations the months slip into a different season. 
This, though, apparently did not trouble the author. The author knows about and opposes the lunar 354-day calendar. Presumably, this calendar, in which the months would move from season to season far faster, would also include intercalation, in which days or months were periodically added to the calendar. Such a calendar, which requires human intervention, not only perverts God's law, but also mixes up the days. Indeed, different festal calendars divide communities. Your holiday is my weekday. It remains an interesting and an open question as to who reformed which calendar. Many scholars have rejected the assertion of Jubilees. It was, they argue, the author of Jubilees and his community that rejected the traditional lunar calendar. On the other hand, as some scholars point out, there is precious little evidence, even in the Bible, that the lunar calendar really was original. But whether or not the author of Jubilees was correct, this difference would have had serious sociological ramifications. The author of Jubilees was not alone in believing that God had ordained a solar rather than a lunar calendar. The book of First Enoch also promotes a solar calendar. Okay, before I discuss this further, I know what some of you are thinking. First Enoch? How many books of Enoch could there be? And who is this Enoch guy anyway? And why does he deserve such books? Enoch is among the more enigmatic characters in the Bible. Genesis chapter 5 gives a genealogy of Adam's line. The list is quite formulaic. When so-and-so lived some number of years, he begat so-and-so and lived some more years and then died. Buried in the middle of this somewhat numbing list, though, is the following notice at verses 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he begot Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, and he begot sons and daughters. All the days of Enoch came to 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more, for God took him. There are several puzzling features about these verses. What does it mean that Enoch walked with God? Is there any significance to the number 365, which makes his end premature relative to the other lifespans on this list? Did Enoch actually die? Ancient readers of this list certainly picked up on these textual peculiarities. Enoch's walking with God was in fact interpreted rather literally. Enoch ascended into the divine realm. While there, he received revelations about the nature and the future of the cosmos. As in Jubilees, he recorded these revelations so that they could be preserved. An enormous and diverse collection of lore crystallized around Enoch, and by late antiquity we have no fewer than three books of Enoch, each of which is probably a collection from many other books of Enoch that no longer survive. Enoch became a paradigmatic revelatory figure. The first book of Enoch, like Jubilees, was first discovered in its Ethiopic translation. The original text was probably Aramaic, fragments of which survive among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The text is very complex, and the entire book as it stands probably patches together at least five independent sources. The first part, chapters 1 to 36, is probably the oldest, most likely dating to around 200 BCE. This part is frequently referred to as the Book of Watchers. 
The Book of Watchers is an explication of the enigmatic biblical story that immediately follows the mind-numbing genealogical list in Genesis 5. Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4, is a fragment of a story about some kind of beings, almost certainly divine, who take human females for wives, and whose offspring appear to have been Nephilim, sometimes translated as giants, but more literally, fallen ones. The story breaks off, and the biblical narrative then moves directly to the story of the corruption of humankind that led to the flood and Noah's Ark. The story raises all kinds of questions. Who were these divine beings? Who were the Nephilim? Does this have anything to do with the corruption of humankind? Enoch attempts to answer these questions. First, Enoch opens with Enoch introducing his revelation. This is a holy vision from the heavens, which the angels showed me, and I heard from them everything, and I understood. I look not for this generation, but for the distant one that is coming. I speak about the elect ones and concerning them. Enoch's revelation came directly from the angels. According to Enoch, the divine beings in the Genesis story were angels called watchers. These many angels took human wives and taught them magic and other destructive arts. The angel Azazel, for example, was said to have taught people how to make weapons of war and women how to beautify themselves so they could seduce men. The angels and human women bore giants who corrupted the earth. The angels who remained in heaven saw this corruption and argued to God that the world should be destroyed. Enoch was approached by these good angels who asked him to intercede with the watchers. Enoch conveys the divine judgment to the watchers, but at the same time also conveys their own prayers for forgiveness to the heavenly realm, but to little avail. The watchers would be spared, but they would not return to the heavens and their children would be wiped out. At that point, Enoch is brought up into the heavens, and God, a flaming mass, tells him that the Nephilim will now be the evil spirits of the earth. Here, as in Jubilees, we have a solution to the problem of theodicy. There are independent, malevolent forces at work in the world, produced by the bastard mating of the divine with the human. These offspring of fallen angels, not God and not luck, cause all that is evil in the world. Enoch continues his tour of heaven, bearing witness to the ultimate punishments that await the wicked. Enoch's account of angels fallen and not is far more developed than that of Jubilees, but both point toward a similar understanding of the way the world works. After a tediously full account of Enoch's tour of heaven, in chapter 72, we come to an account of the astral bodies and his support of the solar calendar. The 364-day calendar, so close to this number in the span of Enoch's life of 365 years as reported in the Bible, is cosmically established fact linked to the movement of the sun and the moon, those who hold, by other calendars, error. Jubilees and first Enoch thus share many features. Both are ascribed to biblical figures and framed as revelations. Both believe that evil angels are at work in the world, and both promote a solar calendar. Both appear to be intended for the elect, a smaller, proto-sectarian group of Jews, although there is no explicit evidence in these books 
that the elect should live apart from the ordinary mass of Jewish sinners. It is worth noting that neither of these books, except for a later addition to First Enoch, seems concerned with the Greeks or Hellenism. If they have a beef, it is with other Jews. We don't know why these books ultimately did not make it into the biblical canon. We can presume, though, that these books were widely known and venerated in antiquity. Jubilees reads just like a biblical book, and one wonders if it was meant, in fact, to be one, or to replace one. Enoch's divine revelation is in some ways similar to those of the prophets, although the content of these revelations are quite different. Some have argued that Jubilees, and especially the visions of First Enoch, testified to an increasingly grim mood, reflected in the Jewish desire to escape from the world and pray for the approaching judgment. I don't fully see this. What I see instead is a fascinating window into the Judaism that the canonical texts obscure, a belief in a cosmos thick with divine beings but nevertheless well-ordered, a world in which revelation still occurred, where there was movement between heaven and earth. That Jews argued with other Jews is not surprising. We've already seen that in the late biblical books. More surprising, perhaps, in light of the events that would occur just a few decades later, is the total lack of concern with Hellenism. It was simply not an issue. It would, of course, become an issue, at least for the later historians who preserved the story of the Maccabean Revolt. Yet, as we shall see, the Maccabean Revolt and the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah that commemorates it was itself hardly a simple case of resistance to Hellenism. That will be the subject of the next episode. You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.